Hi, I'm Susan. And this is Diane. And this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, let you learn and let you grow, together with other mothers, when autumn comes. Every time I edit a new episode, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is my favorite episode. So I don't really know which is my favorite, but today this one can be my favorite. Today you are going to meet Dr. Ami Mehta. She is part of my kids' care team. She is Lorelai and Benji's pain and palliative care doctor. Now, before you freak out at the words palliative care, I want you to listen to this entire episode and realize that palliative care isn't necessarily a scary thing for children. She makes this as fun as possible for my kids. Let me tell you, I, I can count numerous times that I walked in and found her watching The Grinch or Trolls or I think there was like Christmas Madagascar. I don't really know with Lorelai in the ICU. And I'm grateful that we have a palliative care team. And that's weird because what mom is ever grateful that her kid is a palliative patient. But really, I think after you listen to this episode, you will realize that palliative care isn't necessarily always a scary thing. Actually, this conversation was recorded back in January, and she has even more become a part of our team since then, as Lorelai has just struggled over the last almost six months. I love Dr. Meta. She is a gem of a human being, and Children's Hospital of King's Daughters is very, very lucky to have her. Hi, Dr. Meta. Welcome to the When Autumn Comes podcast. Thanks so much for having me. We're really excited to have you here and share your perspective because you are a doctor who, when you are assigned or referred to parents, it is terrifying for us. I know. I hear that all the time. Um, I actually hear that from other physicians that they don't want to refer to palliative care because they don't want to scare the parents or they don't want to think they're giving up on the kid. So tell us what you do. So I am a pediatrician by trade. um, And then I went on and did a year of fellowship training, which is subspecialty training. And I did mine in pediatric palliative care and hospice medicine. So what that means is kind of what it sounds like, which is taking care of kids with complex chronic illnesses and kids who are dying. The thing about it is it's not necessarily having kids who are dying of one specific disease. It's it's kids. In my mind, I think of this job as taking care of kids who have illnesses that are life-limiting, life-threatening, or will have long-term needs. Um, having a life-shortening illness doesn't mean that they're going to die anytime soon. It just means that they're probably not going to live to adulthood, through adulthood, the way we expect for most children. 
So my job as a physician is to be there to walk that journey with you guys, to help manage symptoms along the way, and to always be talking about goals and goals of care. And can you break down that a little bit? Like when you talk about goals, are we talking about, um, you know, because in my mind, I think IEP goals or school goals, you know, but what goals... We do all of those things. So we talk about short-term goals. We talk about long-term goals. We talk about the fact that, you know, we need to get this kid through her third birthday or we, you know, or we need to get through the the week vacation that we're taking in two weeks and how on earth are we going to keep her comfortable and calm through that with the amount of meds we can take on a cruise ship versus long-term goals. You know, how are we going to, what do we want for this kid? What do you as the family want? In medicine, we've gotten so used to having all these tools at our disposal. And I think, and don't get me wrong here, I love subspecialists. I love working with them. But sometimes a neurologist sees just the brain and just about part of that, that part of the body. Sometimes, a, you know, a GI doc only sees the gut and the things that go along with that. My goal is for us to be always having conversations about the child themselves and the family. Um, and what do you want for your kiddo? Yeah, we can we can put a trach in them and put them on a ventilator to keep them breathing. But is that the kind of life you want? Is that the quality of life you want? Has anybody ever explained to you what's going to happen to your child long term? And that comment too, like there's nothing wrong with families who want trachs and who want that route, but you're focusing on what is your family's specific goal? So that's exactly it. I, I'll support family. I have kids with trachs and vents and sometimes it's right for them. And sometimes it's, you know, that it's actually something that's going to improve quality of life. My goal is to be there, to be the advocate in the medical system for your kid so that I can communicate to the other subspecialists that this is actually what they want. This is actually what they don't want. So we want to try all reasonable measures up until the point of this. At that point, they want to prioritize comfort, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody's, every kid is different. Every story is different. Every family and their goals are different. And my goal is to get to know people ideally early in a, in a disease process. So I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but, but is to, to get to know you guys and walk through that with you and be that voice that helps you constantly say, looking at your kiddo, looking, talking to the family saying, looking at your kiddo, where are we? What do we want? And then sending that back to the medical team as a whole. And just Um, because I'm referred to you doesn't mean my kid is dying. Is that correct? Yes, you're totally right. So people always think palliative care means dying. Um, and I think for a long time it did. And for adults, it, it does. So hospice medicine in adults means the end is near, really. Um, and there's a whole complicated conversation about hospice and hospice referrals in the adult world. My point is in palliative care, palliative care is kind of everything up, up until hospice and then beyond as well. So really it is that quality of life maintenance. The vast majority of my kids that I take care of have life-threatening slash life-shortening illnesses. But I have no clue if any of them are going to die imminently or not. And that doesn't matter. I'm still happy to take care of them and and we are there for whatever it is that they need, whatever that looks like for a family. And you also have a pain management component that that's what we use you for right now. Um, You are one of my kids' doctors. We talk to you often. And you help us manage pain for Lorelai to make sure that the quality of life we want her to have, which shouldn't include waking up at 4 a.m. every day and screaming at me, yeah. fix my kid, Dr. Meta, fix my kid, You're help totally me right. get sleep. <laughs> and this is where the pain management 
sort of blends with the palliative. Mm-hmm. Because your kids do have life-shortening illnesses, but we don't know what that's going to look like. And so we're not talking necessarily about sort of acute, like, what's going to happen when, you know, we're right now we're working on symptom management so that the life, whatever whatever we're doing right now, it's the best, most comfortable, most enjoyable life for all parties involved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you see yourself as like a... um a bridge between like the specialists and the family. Like I hearing you speak, obviously you, you know, pain management and everything, but you help kind of break down what everything means and you help the family kind of sift through all of the information that is given to then, I mean, do you have to break the news to people that, that this may be your child's future? To some degree. So Yes, I like to think of myself as sort of a bridge and to help be, I'd like to do it in both ways. So I want to be able to express the family's goals to the paint, to the care team, you know, but I also really want to be able to help break down diagnoses and what that means to the family. You know, I met a kid recently who had, who was told that they have some sort of, the child has a brain, brain malformation and severe epilepsy. And she knows that mom knows the name. Mom knows that her child has epilepsy. But when I said, and this severe form of it, but when I asked mom, what are her expectations? Has anybody ever talked to you about what the future is going to look like for your kid? She said, no. So they're used to, they manage things as they come up. Yes, they manage her high tone with medications. They manage her seizure. They manage her G-tube. We do all those things. But has anybody ever said to you that your child is likely not going to have a normal lifespan? And and. The answer, surprisingly more than I'd expect, is actually no. Nobody's ever had that conversation with them. So we start that conversation, but in, to be fair, I kind of feel it out a little bit and see if the family's ready, but it, part of it is, is saying, well, my goal is to help you figure out what the future is going to look like and make sure that as we walk through it, you guys are satisfied with the care you're getting and we're always aligning with what you want for your kid. That's awesome. I love my job. I mean, well, I can tell that you love your job and what a useful service to provide for a family. Like, I just think that that just sounds so heartwarming. You sound like the one that I want to (laughs) see. I mean, not really, but. (laughs) Listening to you talk, we can tell that you are just so passionate and you love your job, which is part of the reason why I asked you to be here. But listening to you talk, I also think who in their right mind signs up for a job where you have to wake up every day and be like, here's your bad news. Like who signs up for this? What, what got you here? What made you go? This is the line of medicine I want to be in. So and it's funny that you say that because everybody always says to me, you're in pediatric palliative care. You must be a saint. You must be a really good person. I'm like, no guys, I'm an asshole the rest of the time, just like everybody else. But I love my job and I'll tell you why. And this means something deeply to me. And so backing up the personal story behind me going into palliative care, I've always known I wanted to go into medicine. I've always wanted to be a pediatrician. I learned that. I remember one of my very first memories is learning the word pediatrician when I was four and telling my dad, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. And I've always loved it and I've always wanted to do it. So that never wavered. But, you know, within pediatrics, I didn't know what I would do. Um, And somewhere along the way, I figured I'd probably be a neonatologist and take care of little babies because I was a preemie and, you know, passing it along and all that. But also while I was doing, you know, sort of college, early med school years, I kind of hit that quarter life crisis of realizing we're all going to die one day and having it in sort of an acute way of, oh my God, I'm going to die one day. And that's really hard because I love my life. I'm so happy. How can I envision not 
existing and not being here and what that would be like. And, and if I have to die, what does that look like? Is that painful? Is that scary? It's a scary thought. I don't want to think about it for myself. And after a lot of mulling over this, I thought, okay, well, all right. If you're going to be, if you're going to die, what are the things you can control about it? In theory, I can control where I sometimes maybe where I am. You can't always control how it happens. I mean, you know, I could be walking across the street and get hit by a bus. But we all like to think of ourselves being old and sick and living and dying of old age. And I like to think about what are the things that I can do to make the idea of dying less scary. And I realized I could bring myself comfort by sort of working through those scary thoughts. And then I thought, well, wouldn't that be something really neat to be able to help other people with that? And so the integration of my own personal fears and my own worries about dying sort of blended in with my medical education and us real, you know, realizing that we do a lot of things in medicine and the vast majority of them are very, very good, wonderful, life-saving things. But sometimes we go, maybe not necessarily too far, but we see a lot of suffering that's done in the name of extending one's life. And you know, the what would I want this for myself? I'm not sure I would. And I can't make that judgment for anybody else. But what I can do is have that conversation. During my pediatric residency training, there was a couple of episodes where we had kiddos who, for whatever reason, were at the end of their lives. You know, cancer or a sudden injury or illness, whatever it was. And I realized that this is where I feel like I can make a difference, like actually make a difference in somebody's life, I can be there with them. I can walk this path with them. I can make them feel like they're not alone and that I'm going to do every damn thing I can to make their child not suffer and to alleviate the family suffering as well. That to me was worth it. And once I realized that pediatric palliative care was an actual subspecialty, I knew it. I was done. I was hooked. That's incredible. What a, what a story. It. I still love it. That's amazing. So can you speak to, when I heard you talking about just watching the family, bringing it to their attention, like, do you know what the outlook is going to be? What does the transformation look like maybe to a family or a set of parents that are white knuckling their child and their life here on earth and not wanting to lose them? Can you physically see them just relaxing as you work with them? I mean, what does that transformation look like and how does that make you feel as a doctor? So you can sometimes see it. Sometimes it's not as fast as you'd think. It takes a little bit of time. It takes a willingness to have these conversations and a willingness that the family is going to open up and be a little bit vulnerable to me about what it is that they want for their kid. Um, so, yeah, you can see that. And I think, I think, like you said, the vast majority of it is that they feel like they're not alone. And at the end of the day, we may have a conversation and they still decide that they want to do everything full steam ahead. We are going all out to save this child's life and keep them on earth for one more minute, no matter what that looks like. But at least I know I've had that conversation. I've given them the options. My worry is that a lot of families, their experience with the medical community, especially if they've had a kid who is has a, a disease but has been fairly well, you know, they haven't spent a lot of time in the hospital. They haven't seen some of the horrible things about this. And their idea of, for example, CPR is what you see on ER or, you know, 911, Chicago Med, where they do CPR and they bring this child back or they bring this person back and, and they're talking and, you know, telling me about how, how everything feels. That's not how that works. That's not how that looks. Life-saving measures, CPRs, codes are ugly. They hurt. They hurt the baby. They hurt to watch as a physician. They hurt for the family to watch. And for some families, that's okay and that's worth it. 
But I think sometimes there are families for whom they want those things because they think that's what they're supposed to want those things. They want those things because they think that they're giving up on their child if they say, I don't want everything done. My goal is to make it okay for them to say, you know what, when we get to that point, I just want to hold her. I want her to not feel any pain. I want her to be comfortable. And I want whatever time I have, whatever that looks like. My job is to make whatever it is they want to have happen, happen. And we have a lot of different ways to do that. What happens when a family wants to hold on well beyond when you know it's time for them to let go? Most families eventually come around. But I found that the best thing that I can do is support them. I tell them that at the beginning that I'm not, it, so it depends. I tell them at the beginning that my, I will be here with you. Whatever you choose, I will be here with you. If they ask me my personal opinion, I tell them that I will often tend to value quality of life over quantity of life, but I understand that not everybody feels that way. And some for some families, and I, and I say that to them, I feel that whatever you want for your child is the right decision. Um, some families, I will eventually get enough of a relationship with them. This is where the time thing helps so much. The longer I know them, the more they trust me to advocate for their child and to tell them what I really think is best. If I have that relationship with families, I can sometimes tell them, I promise that if I think that your child is suffering and that we're doing too much, I will honestly tell you that. To be fair, I haven't had to do that because families normally come to it on their own. Mm-hmm. But I stand by that. If it's the kind of family that wants me to be honest with them in that way, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm here not, you know, kind of in the middle feeling as though who is my navigator to this whole process? Who is the person that works with me when I dip my toes into, will my kid live a long life? And having, you know, having hope that she will, but then also, what if she doesn't? And what does that feel like, right? And I'm doing all of that internally myself. And everyone around me has their opinion of, oh my gosh, I'm sure she'll be fine. Or, oh, you know, like, oh my goodness, you know, that's really sad to think about. And here I am with that internal struggle. How available are you? I mean, are you a therapist to navigate a parent through that? Or basically Diane's asking for your phone number right now. Yeah, totally. I will you later. <laughs> you <can laughs> no, you should just it. put her up right now. Just give it just to tell everybody. everybody. Your phone <laughs> number. Um, you know, the thing is, I, we do try to be available, but I'm a team. I'm a part of a team. Um, right now, I'm the only provider on the team, but I have a wonderful nurse, Shannon, who is available to my families. And so for regular stuff, for our very many regular patients, we're available, you know, via phone all the time. We give to families our emails so that because the questions come up at, you know, 10 o'clock at night, not during business hours. And then four o'clock in the morning is more like it. Exactly. And that's when you always email me, which is fine. That's when you should email me. So you can tell me what's going on acutely rather than being like, wait, what happened in what order? And then I tried this med and then I'm not sure what helped. So I have no problem. We're happy to be easily accessible by that within that way. And Shannon and I try to be really good about getting back to families quickly. But in addition to Shannon, I have a, a chaplain, a wonderful chaplain, Anne, on my team, and a social worker. And so we together try to be what the family needs. For your question about families, parents that need to process, I'm also really lucky in that I have long appointment times. We have time to sit and chat. There's no rushing you out the door to get the next patient in because I've just been 
very lucky by with my bosses and they understand what I do and the value of time in these conversations. But if you need time to process a little more later, a lot of times, you know, we'll have Anne, the chaplain, meet you during the appointment and or call you later and have somebody to kind of process some of those emotions through with. That's really good to hear because I guess that's where my question was more is what, you know, not just the medication, not just end of life or the process of a disease, but who does a parent go to, you know, when they're trying to process what am I supposed to do? How do I get through this? And so it's really hearing that you have a team. That's really, that's cool how it, that works. It's the best. I couldn't do it without them. I could do it as well as we do it without them tooting my own horn. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I really do think we do a good job, but I think it's because I have those people and I do have, I actually don't mind having some of these conversations about how one feels about things, mm-hmm. but I know some parents don't want to quote unquote waste the doctor's time. It's not a waste of my time, but I don't want them to feel like they have to like rush through a process because they're worried about my time. So if they, you know, if they can have time to chit chat with Anne, that's wonderful. And just sort of think through things. The great thing about having a team that's a wraparound is we see patients outpatient, we see patients inpatient. So if you are having problems at home, call me or email me. If you're down in the ED, someone will let us know. We can come see you there. When you're inpatient, we can see you there and try to be there to support you throughout your journey, whatever that, and even, even for small things. Where the you know, Gosh, that's it. I I need a doctor meta in my life. What about after? <laughs> what about do you have? I'm now I'm asking for myself. Like, what happens after Lorelai passes? Do you have support systems in place for families after, or are we referred to our own psychiatrists for that? No, well, we do. It. Well, that you might not have the one worst of idea. I already <laughs> have a counselor. We're good. But there's a combination of things. So one, we do try to stay in touch and make sure that you know that your child isn't forgotten. But Anne is there for, Anne has a grief support group. She's our bereavement coordinator as well. So she has grief support groups she can get you tied in with. We're working on things in the hospital to improve the process for families of having a kid that's dying. And that's more of the acute dying things, not mm-hmm. the palliative care type things, mm-hmm. but the bereavement support at time of, you know, and, and how do we best support you guys afterwards when you're in that fog? How are we still there for you? Um, yeah, and and Anne still does reach out to families afterwards, but mm-hmm. I'm sure, I mean, it's just such a process and I'm lucky, like who says that they're lucky to have their kids already enrolled in a hospice program, but I'm lucky because my kids are part of a hospice program that works with you and, or not with you, but parallels with you. And mm-hmm. like, they're not part of your hospital is what I'm trying to say. No, right? they're not, but we do yeah. work closely together. Right. So I'm lucky that I have them because they have support well beyond the passing of my kids. But I wonder if somebody isn't familiar with this, like how a mom who is just getting a diagnosis or is two years into a diagnosis and is like Diane and doesn't have a doctor like you, like, where do we, where do we, we reach have? out to find you? Yeah. No, honestly, Again, can you just give your phone number? Absolutely not. (laughs) But, you know, I actually encourage you to, any families who are struggling, one, reach out to your physician. So sometimes, ideally the diagnosing physician, because if there's a physician that's diagnosing kids with difficult diagnoses, life-limiting diagnoses, they do have some resources. Sometimes I worry that my subspecialty colleagues, again, like I said at the beginning, are afraid to bring it up to families because they don't want them to think their kid is imminently dying or that they're giving up on their kid by referring them to a palliative care. Mm -hmm. But much of the time, physicians, you know, subspecialists will have people within their health system that they can ask for. We reach out to each other all the time 
as physicians. There's also, I think it's okay to ask your hospital system if they have a chaplain. Chaplains, depending on where you are, they may be many or few, and they may be only for inpatient type stuff. You know, I'm lucky in that I have Anne that can come to clinic appointments, but it's not just my service that has access to people like Anne. It's just that we're the only ones that utilize her frequently. So you can always reach out and ask to speak to a hospital chaplain at any point and to process a little bit. And the chaplain doesn't just mean that it's like a religious person. I feel like that's kind of... In a hospital setting when people are like, do you want the chaplain to come pray with you? But I feel like there's more to a chaplain than just they're not necessarily a religious person. I totally agree with you. So you're right. It's not a, I think of him more as a support person who can help process the emotional piece of things, whether or not that includes faith. Mm-hmm. Anne and I always joke that she has a bottle of a spray bottle of holy water and she's going to come in, guns blazing, <laughs> you know, that because there's some families that'll say to you, like, well, I don't I'm not religious you know, my answer is, it's okay. You don't have to be. That's not the point of having somebody like Anne come. The point is having somebody to talk to and somebody to process what this is like. And faith questions do come up, you know? And so, yes, maybe it is a nice thing to be able to have somebody that's not your own family priest or pastor to have those conversations with about struggling with what God wants for you and your family and your child. Sometimes it's nice to have that other person, but it doesn't have to at all. This is so informative because I actually just emailed, not to bring this back to our story, but emailed our neurologist mm-hmm. from a former guest that will be aired. Um, and I, she said, just reach out to them and just, you know, tell them that you're struggling. And I did. And I love our neurologist. She's incredible. However, she was like, that sounds good. Let's get the referral ordered. And I was like, but I'm just really struggling. And I feel between school saying, we have questions about this. And the sleep doctor saying, we have questions about that. I feel like I just bounce around not knowing how to get grounded to figure out how to move forward emotionally, you know, through this process. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting here taking notes, not of questions I'm going to ask you, but emails I'm going to shoot off after this. (laughs) I thought you were taking question notes. Like I was like, she has Mm -hmm. a lot of things to ask Dr. Uh Meadow right now. No, not. Yeah, that's well. When what you're saying is true, it's hard, and not everybody has somebody who can. And and again, it depends. Like some of them, you know, there are some fantastic physicians out there that are very, very good at their subspecialty, and maybe not the most emotionally intelligent people. And it's no detriment to them because we all have our str- our strong suits. But you know, most people do have somebody they can ask for help, somebody they can reach out to. So I, I you think- know. Talking to moms in general, like what Diane's saying, is very common that we just don't necessarily know who to go to. And mm-hmm. um, sometimes a pediatrician is helpful and they can pass you to places, but sometimes a pediatrician doesn't get you beyond the wellness checks and yep. the things like that. And that's where someone like in your role would be very beneficial to a lot of people with complex medical kids. You know what I think part of the problem is? I think that sometimes parents, especially moms, are afraid to ask for help for themselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know this. Totally. Like, this is a this is a fact. But, you know, they're, they're here. They, they figure they're coming to the pediatrician because they want to make sure their child has their boxes checked and their vaccines up to date and all that. So they do that. And then they don't stop to think, you know what? I need help, too, because if I'm the best mom I am, then I can be the best mom to my child. I really want to encourage parents to open up to their physicians, to their pediatricians about this. I love when I get to talk to 
again, partly it's because most of my patients are nonverbal, but um, I love when I get to talk to parents about what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what this is like, because it helps me to learn as a provider and as a physician, the right things to do and say and to who you want me to be, how I can help you, who I can get on my team. One day I hope to grow my team. Who do I need that can really help provide, fill these gaps, you know? Yeah. I learn from you guys just as much as you learn from me. And to be quite honest, it really helps me to hear things that you guys have liked to hear in the past and haven't liked to hear in the past. You know, I've learned not to make mistakes by listening to other people's mistakes or making them myself. Mm-hmm. I don't think you've said anything to me. <laughs> let me, let me, let me say think it for the world. Let's if you just have, say it for the world. Hold on. Let me think. <laughs> no, 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 but I do. I mean, in our situation, you've known my kids. You were a resident when Lorelai Correct me. You were a resident when Lorelai was in the NICU. Yep. And so you met us then, and you've kind of gone full circle with us when Lorelai was born. You were around, and now Lorelai's progressing, and you're around. I remember you were there the first day that I spoke for the rare disease rounds. You came and got me in the lobby, and I was like, wait a minute. Like, you're here again? Like, you're back? back. (laughs) (laughs) So you've kind of been, that's why you're here, because I have a relationship with you as our kid's doctor and you've been so supportive and you have taken the time to get to know us as a family. So you know how we care for our kids. You know that I'm a hover helicopter parent. You know that we're not going to leave Lorelai for one minute in the pick you, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know, to bring coffee yes. occasionally. Mm-hmm. Well, That's the best part of it. Like I said, it's one of the really good things about my job is when I get to meet families early in the disease process, it doesn't mean, I mean, I met Lorelai when she was, and to be fair, that was partly because I was a resident, but you know, I met, I started taking care of Lorelai as a patient over two years ago now. And it's not because anybody thought that we were imminently, you know, Lorelai was going to die. That's not the case. It's just that we can help you long-term because you are in and out. And the best part is that I get to make a relationship with you guys to know your goals, but I also get to know Lorelai. So the few minutes where you aren't there for whatever reason, if you can't be there, I can be like, no, no, look, Lorelai does do these things at home. So this is really a change. Whereas, you know, they don't know her like that in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, I always, and this is a one useful thing I think for families to know is we see kids at their worst in the hospital. So we expect, to be fair, we don't expect a lot. <laughs> we don't know what to expect. I don't know that your kiddo, while the fact, you know, she may be largely nonverbal, but she will clap her hands on command if she wants something. Mm-hmm. So knowing that I have my ways that I can get Lorelai to communicate and when she's not behaving, I know that something's really wrong. Whereas somebody who doesn't know Lorelai might think this is her baseline, Yeah, you know? So having that benefit really helps me to move forward and to be her advocate as well in the hospital. Was it you or Anne that came into the ICU and Lorelai had her talking tablet out and she was like, goodbye, 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 all done, all done, (laughs) goodbye. Well, that's exactly it though, but you know, I know, we know that Lorelai can slash will do those things when she is feel, and it's a good sign that she's feeling Mm better-ish. You know, she's snarky. Right. And those are, nobody else would know that about her. Exactly. Exactly. I always try to encourage families that when you have a special needs type of kid, when you bring them into the hospital, if you can show your provider, your care team videos of them at their baseline, that is hugely helpful to us. Because actually, it tells me that she does wiggle and squirm and do all these things. And I am seeing, you know, a lump on a log. Now I know what what our goal is to get back to as well. When Lorelai was inpatient in Orlando, the palliative care team there, because we were so far from home, 
they had me email them like 10 pictures and they printed them all eight by 10 size. And Lorelai was intubated. And I mean, she was bad and they posted them all over the walls so that their care team could come in and see Lorelai at her best and kind of a reminder for what we were all fighting for and like who she was. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, I love that. Mm-hmm. I love seeing pictures of kids with their families and, and videos of them, you know, singing along to whatever at home. First of all, it makes the experience better. It reminds me that I'm looking at a kid who's not just, you know, a physiology. It's a, a child who has a family and has a life and has people who love them. That is all helpful. But it also lets me know, I mean, great. It's great for clinical baseline, you know, as a physician, but it's also great as a human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you keep and hold a relationship for families and children that are not in and out of the hospital? Like, is that still fairly common? Diane's probably asking yeah. because she wants to be your friend. For, for personal reasons. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> well, no, those kids, I mean, we see in clinic with some regularity, depending on what the family's needs are. We are working on integrating some telehealth to try to, prior to the pandemic, this was a brilliant idea. Now it's commonplace. But to try to get easy conversations to be had without necessarily having to schlep your child in. We also do our best to be accommodating. So if I know that you guys don't live close and you're here on a GI visit, well, I'll come over. I'll either schedule you at the same time or I'll come up and see you in GI clinic so that we can you know, knock out multiple visits in one go. That was going to be my next question. And the other best thing that I get to do, and I'm really, really lucky that I get to do it, is I get to do home visits. So I love being able to go out and see kids at home. And it depends. Some families love bringing their kids in because it's their exciting adventure of the day. And again, more valid before COVID that they would want to bring their kids to the hospital for a, a, you know, a clinic visit to see some new people. But I'm lucky enough that I get to go out to people's homes and see their kids in their home environment, see what struggles that they have and what wonderful things that they have and see the other kids in the house and see the dog that's climbing all over the kid. It's a real blessing. If a parent is listening and they feel like they would like a palliative care or pain management doctor. Do they ask for a referral or is it something that they could call their hospital and say, could you connect me with this department? Like how would a mom or dad or family member listening, how would they get connected with you if they think it's something their family needs? So the first, yes, you can always call the hospital, but let's be real. When you call the hospital, you get the operator and sometimes they don't even know what's going on. Your best bet is to call your subspecialists, especially the subspecialists that's most closely related to your child's diagnosis and ask them for help. Sometimes there aren't local places, but even if there's a bigger hospital where, you know, if you, you know, live in the middle of nowhere, I'm sure there's a bigger hospital a few hours away, you can still ask for someone to be, to reach out to a, a palliative care physician there. And from there, see if you can get like a second opinion slash consult slash advice. Okay. Um, I think that always start with your primary care or your primary subspecialist. And the main reason, there's two reasons. One is they're going to know the best resources, but two, it tells that physician that you want to open the doors about having conversations about more symptom management stuff or that you are thinking about long-term things. And it might open the door for them to have some conversations with you that they've wanted to have, but have been hesitant to have. Great. That makes sense. At the end of the day, we're physicians and we're, we don't want, the thing is we all go into medicine because we're people pleasers. We want to make people better. We want to make people happy. So sometimes we're afraid to have those conversations with our families because we don't want to make them sad or mad or scared. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes sometimes it's exactly what we need to help process and to help get to that next place, even if it's not life or death. Well, you know, even if it is, sometimes it is, but 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 you're right. Yeah. Sometimes like, I mean, right now we don't foresee my children dying tomorrow, but sometimes it helps me to be able to have a conversation with you as a doctor of, 
I understand that my kids have a life-threatening disease and they will probably not live very long lives. And a lot of doctors don't want to go there sometimes. They just want to talk about, let's manage this and move to the next thing. But to be able to communicate it as a parent, it's just helpful. Well, you know, and to your point, sometimes we don't have to have those little conversations, but having big conversations helps us direct little conversations. You remember the first conversation that you and I and Mike had in my old office and we said, if we don't know how we want to make sure that these kids have, your child has a good quality of life. And that means we have to use meds more than we would like to. But if it means we use meds to make her comfortable now, that's worth it. So that Mm -hmm. opens up the possibility of me to say, well, what kind of meds do I have in my toolbox that are going to help with symptom management right now without snowing her, still keeping good comfort? Whereas if you had told me, we want to use no meds, we want to be off of all these things, unrealistic though that may have been, that would have helped guide me in figuring out how to manage current symptoms by knowing what you overall want for your kiddo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had Such the, good information. the eye-opening conversation with us where you said, I mean, you understood where we were, but you said we were struggling because one of us wanted to add meds to make her comfortable. And one of us was afraid of adding meds because she's at the time was like two and a half years old. And the kid is on more meds than I've ever been on in my life. And the idea of adding more medication was just terrifying. And so you made the comment to us that Lorelai is a very sick little girl. She's always going to have meds. Like if this Mm -hmm. is part of her life, then this is – and since then, both of us have kind of just embraced that we need to try these meds and they're they're scary. It's scary to have a list of 25 meds that your child is on every single day and to have five emergency meds in the closet. But your conversation with us helped us get to that point where we're like, okay, this is what we're dealing with. This is how we get Lorelai to where she needs to be comfortably. You're right. And I guess part part of what I hope you took away, and obviously you did, was that not only do you, we are, are we going to use meds, but you're not on your own deciding mm-hmm. what meds to use. We will try. We will talk. We will change things. We will tinker. We'll do whatever and needs to be done. To. We yes, have we've absolutely had. had to with Lorelai. Some weeks we're tinkering three times a week. Yes. <laughs> and, that's, and that's okay because the goal is to get her comfortable and, you know, by default, get the rest of your family. Like you have to sleep. I mean, I know you guys enjoy being up at four in the morning, but eventually I'd like you guys all to be able to sleep. And yeah. so if we can make little changes to make everybody's life better, not just Lorelai's, then that's a win. Yeah. Yep. We're going to take a quick time out. And before you click fast forward thinking that this is the same ad you've heard over and over and over again, let me just tell you, it's not. I have something new to tell you. We have the 4AM Mom Club. I know, I know, I told you it was something new, but it is. Hang on. We have something also called the When Autumn Comes Society. The 4AM Mom Club is still open and still available to support medical and special needs moms who are going through... uh, life. But we have the When Autumn Comes Society. It is now on Facebook. And that is a place for moms, dads, friends, caregivers, uh, nurses, grandmas, I don't know, doctors, anybody, anybody. I'm not, I'm not, I'm taking anybody and everybody, guys, anybody and everybody, because we love you all and you guys love us. So join us on Facebook at the When Autumn Comes Society. I feel like we, you know, maybe over-exaggerated with the word society, but hey, we got class. Join us there. We talk about things that make us hopeful and hopefully just life. 
If you are a medical and special needs mom, though, we still have the 4 a.m. Mom Club for extra support with moms who get it. See you there. Speaking of being at home, I have two questions. One, if a family wants to be sure, if one of their goals is to have their child pass at home, mm-hmm. is that something that you help do? And two, if the child is passing, whether at the hospital or at home, are you there? Are you part of that? What does that look like? So, yes. I, so it is whatever the family wants. So if the family wants their kiddo to pass away at home, um, I we make that happen. We can make that happen. We can make that happen with medication management. It's nice because, you know, here locally we have Edmark that helps us, our local hospice agency that can help and be eyes and ears on the ground. But I will be there as much as anybody wants me to be there. Sometimes families are afraid to have that happen alone. And in which case, when we start getting to the point where I'm worried that a kid is actually getting closer to the end of their life, I, that's when, that's the time at which I really give, I, I make it a point to make sure families have my cell phone number and they can call me anytime, day or night, text with questions. And if they need me to come out to the house, I'll come out to the house. Again, I have enough flexibility in my work that you know, if I need to go to somebody's house in the middle of the night, I can cancel clinic the next day or we'll figure out something. You need an RV. Oh my God, that's brilliant. You'd be like the mobile death mobile. The death mobile. See, right now I'm called the angel of death by one of my favorite co- colleagues. Um, uh-huh. So we'll get wings printed on the back of the, the, the RV. Welcome to the RV club, Dr. Meta. <laughs> <laughs> my husband will hate you. Thank you. Anyway, so as far as going out to people's homes to be there with them, I'm happy to as much or as little as they want. And if they want their child to die at home, we can make that happen if that's what they would like. And mm-hmm. if they want it to happen in the hospital, that sometimes takes a little bit of logistical work to make sure that even in the hospital, it's what they want, but we can do it. Mm-hmm. What a weird sense of comfort. I mean, this conversation is very candid and very blunt, and yet it brings so much comfort to know there's somebody there if and when your child is at the end of their life and you have to watch that or be a part of that, you know, to have somebody like you and a team like you that is, we'll make it happen. We will make this the best experience possible. Thank you. I love what I do. I love getting to do that kind of thing. It's morbid, but there's something very peaceful and satisfying about what we call a good end of life, a good death, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, sort of an oxymoron, but at the same time, we all know what bad deaths look like. And if, And if you don't, then you've been blessed to not have seen a bad death. And so, you know, if I can make death as good and as comfortable and as peaceful as it can be and as, you know, in their parents' arms and listening to their favorite music and with their fuzzy blanket, well, then that's, I consider that, you know, good work. If, If that's the inevitable, I mean, you can control what you can control and it is, it's, it's beautiful. So Dr. Meadow. We wrap up all of our episodes by asking one question. What gives you hope? Hmm. Give me a second to think about this one. Mm-hmm. You didn't do your homework. I, have a, a, I didn't. I have a snide answer, which is the fact that people keep procreating, so there must be hope for the future somehow. You know, you can complain all you want about the president, but if you keep procreating, <laughs> then I know you think there's a future coming. <laughs> I guess my answer would probably be my patients. They give me hope. Um, one, I have the blessing of working with children who are so joyful and delightful and never complain about their lot. Even when miserable, they're wonderful. So 
they give me hope because you look at them and you see a future of possibility. Granted, we learn that hope means different things for different people. And as a slight aside, I want to tell you about, you know, people say about palliative care, don't ever take away your family's hope. Don't ever take away a family's hope. And I figure it's my job not to necessarily take away their hope by saying, no, your child's not going to survive, but by saying, what can we change to hope for? Maybe we can hope for, instead of more years of life, we can hope for more good quality time. Maybe we can hope for peace. We can hope for comfort. Um, so knowing that I have the tools slash the ability, the gift of this job where I can, I can do this and be this for these patients, that's hopeful to me. Because I can't stop kids from dying, but I can sure try to make it better. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. So what did you think, Diane? I think it was really great to see both sides of the gamut, right? Like, you kind of assume palliative care is for families like Susan. Um, But it's also really nice to hear that everyone has, not everyone, but there are a lot of scenarios where people have access because it's just comforting. Like I'm in a place where I feel a little lost right now. And so all of you out there that are feeling, you know, the same way that aren't necessarily in the hospital all the time, you know, reach out if you need to your physician. And I just love her. I really do. I love the passion that she has to help kids and families. And I am so, 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 so grateful that Dr. Meta is part of my kids' team. This is Susan, and I am going to go get Benji ready for his cardiology appointment. Yay for heart day. This is Diane, and I'm going to do some laundry. See y'all next week. We know you have so many choices on how to spend your time. Thank you so much for choosing to spend it with us. We would be honored to hear your unique, complicated, and hope-filled stories. We would love for you to connect with us and share your story on our website, www.whenautumncomes.com, and you can find us on social media at When Autumn Comes Podcast. Also, check us out at 4AM Mom Club, where we will be sharing our middle-of-the-night shenanigans, Etsy finds, Netflix faves, and other things that get us through. We would love for you to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll continue to hear unique stories, feel a whole lot of comfort and connection, and hopefully share in a few laughs. We are new to the podcasting world, so this show is produced by yours truly. With hope and a whole lot of excitement, Diane and Susan. See you next time.